everybody. Welcome to the show today, The Advancing Man Project. My name is Dave Whitley, and today on the show, I've got Dave Scott, who is um, a guy that I connected with on social media. We've never met or talked to each other face-to-face until this call, but Dave, it's good to meet you. A little bit of information about him. He's a man of faith. He's a husband, a father, and a personal trainer. Been in the game for 27 years. Grew up in a family where type 2 diabetes was the... Uh, the norm. So we've got some stuff in common there. She used that as motivation to help the community around him get healthier, lead better lives. Um, loves hanging out with his wife, loves hanging out with his kids and goofing around in the gym. And this, uh, th- this next little bit that he sent me on the bio questions is uh, probably one of the things that we truly connect on a lover of heavy music, all things, Darth Vader and Superman. And he's doing his best to pass those things on to his kids. So, um, Dave, welcome to the show. And, uh, it's an honor to have you on here. And, um, um, Tell me a little bit about how you came to be where you are and what you're doing. Well, Dave, let me let me start off by thanking you for giving me the opportunity to be on here with you. It's, it's an honor, and uh, I really appreciate it. Um, where do you want me to start? Do you want me to start with the training? Do you want me to start just where do you want to go? Just go wherever you want to go with it, man. This is this is just two dudes talking. So I spent my – we'll start with the training. I spent my first three years in, in college as a crim justice major. And my, my, my intention was to go into law enforcement. And um, we had a family friend. I had a conversation with a family friend at one point who made the comment to me almost kind of offhand that at least in the field he was in, the divorce rate was over a hundred percent. And, you know, you start doing the math on that. It's like, well, how's, how's that even work? Yeah. And <laughs> I'm going to need some clarification on that. What he told me was that, you know, a lot of, there were a lot of folks who were getting married, divorced, married again, and then divorced again. Right. So they're, you know, just repeat offenders, so to speak. Yeah. And given where I came from, from a, fa- from a family standpoint, that was, that was just not something I wanted to entertain or, or, uh, that was an immediate turnoff for me from that from that standpoint. You know, I, I came from a uh, home where uh, mom and dad divorced very early on. And one of the things that I wanted to do going forward uh, was to have a family. And the idea that I could be getting into a field where that that was so rampant, um, it was just an immediate turnoff. So I kind of took a step back and you kind of had to come to Jesus moment and said, okay, well, what, what do you really want to do with your life? Then if this is not the direction you're going to go, what, what do you want to do? And I just happened to be in the gym at the time I'm Mm -hmm. having this internal dialogue. And uh, I looked around and said, you know, I could, I can make a living with this. This is something else that I love. I could do this. And from that point, I changed majors and became a Kines major. Um, and I would say maybe a year and a half later, uh, I graduated and went to work full time. And that, that's pretty much all I've done for the most part since uh, I graduated. I graduated college in uh, 98. So this was probably... This was probably fall of 96 when this was happening. 
went about getting a certification, you know, and you know how the business is. You you go yep. and you get a two-day certification and you're out on the floor working with people. Um, you know, I'm a young college kid, don't know anything other than, you know, bench pressing five by fives. Uh, but I was, I was, I started working. And uh when I graduated, I went to work at a place in DC, uh, a training studio that really gave me an opportunity to kind of go deep in terms of how many people I was training on a, on a regular basis. And it really kind of helped me develop my chops as far as working with people, uh, training program design, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, you kind of, you kind of got forced. It's almost like drinking out of a, out of a firehouse. Right. You know, you, you just get immersed in it. And uh, so lots of practice early on, and that's also the place that I happened to meet my wife. So oh, cool. it was, it was, a, it was a, it was a good decision all the way around. And, you know, I think I stayed there for maybe two years, left there, kind of uh, got out of the DC market, uh, went home to Southern Maryland, which is where I grew up and uh, trained there until, until we left in September. So that's kind of, that's the, that's the not so short version of, of how I got to where I am right now. So you started out in 96 and you left in 2023, just a few months ago, right? Yeah. That's a long time. It's a long time. And, um, when you, when you trained, when you moved, what was the, what was the reasoning behind that? What was the impetus behind that? Uh, the, the area that we lived in was not the area I grew up in. Um, just, you know, the, the public school systems weren't great. The private school options, uh, were, weren't great either. Um, and my family and I, we, we vacationed down here in Myrtle beach for, for years. Right. And everybody loves it down here. And when my wife and I started seriously thinking about, well, where would we go? This was one of the places that, that we kind of theorized might be a good landing spot for us. So uh, one summer when we were down here, we went around and, and visited some of the different schools and uh, identified a couple of private schools that were options for our girls. And um, it was, it was, uh, uh, I guess, you know, whether you call it fate, fortune, or just God moving in our lives, um, some opportunities opened up. And uh, we we were able to get down here over the summer, which was good because my my oldest daughter just went into high school. And our goal was to have our family kind of cemented somewhere before she started high school so that she would have kind of a consistent experience through high school. Right. Uh, she was she was one of those kids who, you know, like a lot of kids, her her school years got disrupted by covid. Uh, yeah. She was at school up until fifth grade. She was in the same school. Um, we took her out and homeschooled her in sixth grade, which was kind of right in the heart of the pandemic. And then uh, when school started to open back up, we actually changed schools. And uh, she she attended that school for two years. And unfortunately, that school only went to eighth grade. And so now we were looking at, OK, well, what are we going to do as far as high school goes for her? Again, the public schools weren't weren't great options, um, and the private school options were 
you know, an hour to an hour and a half drive away. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's a long time, not just for the kids to be in the car every day, uh, but for my wife, you know, hauling back and forth. So yeah. we just, we felt like this was the time to go. Cool. So really the, at the root of the move was looking at the situation you were in, what's best for my kids, what kind of experience do I want to provide for them? Let's go create that for them. So that's, Absolutely. that's pretty cool. That's yeah, that's, that's good. I am, um, I'm very much in favor of that kind of attitude of um, let's, let's create the life that we want instead of just accepting the life that's been laid down in front of us, you know? So that's awesome. But it makes sense too, coming from a personal trainer background that, uh, that centered and moving forward has a lot to do with the way you would approach stuff for sure. Um, to that point, since obviously because of that, your, uh, your family, your kids mean everything to you. Um, what is your fundamental principle around being a father? I think there's, I think there's three jobs as a dad that I have to, that I have to make sure that I fulfill. Um, the first one is I have to introduce them to the God that I have a relationship with. Once that, once that introduction has been made and they're adults and they're living their own lives, how their relationship with that God goes forward is, is, is on them. You know, it's kind of their business, mm -hmm. but as a parent, it's my job to, to make the introduction so they know who God is. Okay. Uh, second job is to make sure that they know that I love them unconditionally. And I think the third job is to, is to set boundaries and then enforce those boundaries. So I think, you know, just, it's hard for me to nail it down to, to one principle, but uh, those are kind of the three things that I think make those are the three jobs that if I if you know on my deathbed I can look back and say I did those three things I think I'll have done right by them makes sense um talk a little bit more about uh about setting and enforcing boundaries because that's that's a that's a broad topic you paint with a broad brush it can be open mm -hmm. to interpretation there so I'm curious how you approach that well I think it's it's just one of those things where as a family, you know, you kind of have to decide what's acceptable and what's not, right? And then go about enforcing those things. Like for instance, um, uh, our daughter doesn't, our oldest daughter doesn't have any technology in her, in her room at night. You know, her computer, uh, her laptop from school, her cell phone, which she just got this year, they all come down and they sit down in the kitchen on the on the countertop and the reason that we wanted that to be the case was just because it's so easy uh for kids and adults really to just get sucked into things like social media mm -hmm. and you know what have you and have that impact their sleep uh which impacts their their nutrition choices the next day which impacts their study habits which you know it, it creates this trickle down effect and so that was one of the things that my wife and I decided we wanted to, that that's a rule in our house is that we don't have the technology in the room at night. And um, luckily with this daughter, we, she, she's really a good kid. I mean, and, and every parent thinks that about their kids, right? I mean, we all, mm -hmm. we all want to see the best in our kids. Um, 
but this one is this one is she is really an old soul very mature for her age so we haven't had to we haven't had to fight too hard with things um i don't know if that answers your question or not yeah yeah it totally does that's um, an example uh, it totally we does. we didn't we didn't allow her to have a cell phone until just this year um we felt like now was the time because she's she's getting old enough you know she's involved in sports and things like that you know she just played volleyball for the first time this year uh so she was going to be at practice and you know what happens if practice gets cut short and right we can be there early to pick her up and that kind of thing so we we felt like this was the right time and she was mature enough she'd shown a level of maturity uh that just gave us the faith to trust her mm -hmm. to give her some of those things so uh, that's cool um as you're talking i'm thinking um You've got vast experience in the gym. You got experience as a dad. What is your training philosophy in the gym? And then the second part of that question would be how does that relate to the way you approach your dad life or your approach fatherhood? The gym, I think, is principle driven. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I think there's a lot of different ways to go to skin that particular cat. And as long as you adhere to solid principles mm -hmm. the methods that you use i don't think they matter as much as long as the principles are in place and aren't violated mm -hmm. like like examples of what principles you're talking about there well, like just like progressive overload for instance sure. right it, it to me it doesn't it, it doesn't matter if you're using like body weight and calisthenics if you're using um, a barbell or you're using a kettlebell sandbag whatever mm -hmm. Over time, you have to have progressive overload in order to see benefit from it. And whether that's a bigger bell, whether it's more reps uh, per set or, you know, more density, so to speak. You know, there's a lot of different levers you can pull on to make that progressive overload happen. Mm -hmm. uh, but you have to you have to live by that principle of progressive overload. Yep. And as a father, I think trying to look at things from a principle-based approach is the way to go as well. And, and there's, I think there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different really good parents out there who do things a little bit differently. But I think if you take the, the kind of the 10,000 foot view of how everything is being done, you'll see the overlap. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And I, I think you could see that in the gym. You can see that with good coaches. Mm -hmm. And I think you can see that with good parents. Yeah. That's the thing that I'm always, um, I'm always guided by myself and I learned it primarily through physical training, but I, I realized that it does apply to every other aspect as well. And probably the easiest example to give is a martial art example, right? Um, if, if we're talking and, and I like the way that you said methods versus principles, cause that's very, that's yeah. The methods come and go principles never change kind of stuff is, is how I interpreted that years ago when I first started thinking along those lines. But if, if we're using a martial arts example, there are certain movements or certain um, techniques that exist in virtually every single martial art. Like there's a certain, uh, set of joint locks or there's a you know a certain type of punch or a certain target areas 
that exist in every martial art across the board. And that's because they work, right? Mm -hmm. There are certain principles that exist across every successful um, training methodology, whether you want to go from, you know, the, the Mike Mincer one set to failure sort of idea all mm -hmm. the way across to, you know, German volume training, 10 sets of 10 kind of stuff. And I think that it's very easy for us to get caught up in the differences mm -hmm. and our human nature wants to argue over the differences. Mm -hmm. But if we set that aside and look and say, okay, what do all of these different approaches, all these different methodologies have in common? That's where the principles lie. And so that's where the truth lies. Right. And, and so I, I very much am in agreement with you that, um, Training should be principle driven and also parenting should be principle driven. It's like, what is, what's the principle behind how I'm going to deal with my son who, you know, he's, he's five now, but like say he's three years old and he's having a huge emotional reaction to something that he doesn't like. What is the principle behind this that I need to adhere to? And so like for myself, I'm like, okay, what can I learn as a dad about how the human brain develops during that age period? Because if I can, it, if I'm attempting to to go logic and reason with him while he's in the middle of of an emotional upheaval at age four or five or whatever, um, two things are going on there. One, he's not in a in a, an emotional state to even be talked to, and two, from a brain development standpoint, he doesn't have the necessary tools. You know, it's like if you came in the gym and you're brand new, and I said, "Okay, we're going to load this bar to 585 pounds, and I want you to deadlift it four times." It's just not there. You know, you don't even know what a deadlift is yet, much less be able to do that. So, yeah, looking at it from a principle-based standpoint like that, that's how I approach um, pretty much everything. But it was, it was a martial art idea that originally introduced that to me. So um, um, I like that you have the, the three principles that you talked about earlier. Um, and, yeah, it is hard to nail down into one principle, but um, it seems to me that you've, you've thought about that a bit. Um, <clears throat> so... How, how does, I want to hear you talk more about that, about how, how understanding progression, progressive overload, the importance of, you know, good technique, all of that sort of stuff, how that bleeds over, where are the commonalities between that and how you approach being a dad? Well, I think, I, <clears throat> I think consistency is, is important, right? One of the reasons that, um, I, I grew up in a Christian household. And one of the reasons that as a, as a grown adult myself and I, and, and, you know, making my own choices at this point, one of the reasons that um, I am still a Christian is because if you, if you actually, if you actually read scripture, right. The God of the Bible is consistent from the beginning to the end. He's the same guy from the beginning of the story to the end of the story. Right. And so I think consistency is something that for those principles to have teeth, you have to apply them consistently. And I think that's true in, I think that's true in training. And I think it's true in parenting. Uh, I can tell you that I suffer from what I call exercise ADD, mm -hmm. where, you know, I, I have, I have seen my best progress when I have been able to latch onto a program and work the program, 
right? But I can also tell you that I've spent a good chunk of my time getting three weeks into a program, seeing this one over here that does something different <laughs> and, and jumping onto that, you know what I mean? So from a, from a, a training perspective, that's one of the things that I can tell my clients, look, I, I have made this mistake, you know, let's not do that. You know, from a parenting standpoint, I have done plenty of dumb stuff in my life uh, that I'm not proud of. I can now come back to my, my kids and say, I did that. It wasn't good. Let's not do that. You know, let's, let's, let's try to avoid that mistake. Mm -hmm. And I think as a, as a coach and as a parent, part of our job is to be able to share uh, some of the scars and mistakes that, that we have and have made to help guide them so that they don't make them themselves. Um, I know the reality of it is, is that, you know, pain is one of the best teachers there is. And, you know, kids and clients are going to make mistakes. Um, and I think as a coach or as a parent, our job is to help them kind of navigate that afterwards, kind of help them figure out, okay, what can we learn from this and move forward with it? Mm -hmm. Um, so there's, uh, there's a huge overlap, I think, between, uh, training and coaching and just being a parent, because ultimately what we're trying to do is we're trying to guide people to the best version uh, of themselves. You know, as a coach, we're trying to help people kind of clear the path and help them, help them move further down the path. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I told one of my clients once that, uh, basically my job was to be like a Sherpa, right? You know, I'm supposed to walk the path with them, help them navigate around the pitfalls and, you know, make when they come to a fork in the path, hopefully make the right choice. Uh, but I can't walk the path for them. They have to do that. And it's not my job to tell them how far down the path to go. Mm -hmm. Right. It's my job is just to walk with them. Right. As a, as a parent, you know, I, I think while they're still kids, it's my job to tell them how far down the path to go. But once they're adults, you know, I have to be able to let that go. And um, I'm getting close with, with the 14 year old. She's, right. you know, she's going to be a grown up soon and um, is going to have to make her own choices. And, and hopefully uh, my wife and I have, have walked enough with her, have shared enough with her, have, um, tried to instill enough stuff that she's going to be able to, you know, do a good job by herself. And how old are you? So I I just turned 49. Happy birthday. Thank you. Um, I was, uh, I was 48. I turned 49 a month after my son was born. So I got a little bit of a late start on you, but, uh, um, we're essentially from the same age bracket then. Right. I mean, five mm -hmm. years is nothing when you get to late forties, early fifties. Um, I'm curious, um, the environment that you and I grew up in socially in schools, all that sort of stuff, it's quite different than it is now. Absolutely. Some, of, some of it was, was, I think better. And a lot of it, I think wasn't as good as it is now. Um, but mostly just different, right? Because people are going to be people and the same sort of issues are going to show up just kind of like principles versus methods. The human nature is going to show up in whatever form. Um, <clears throat> I'm curious 
in your upbringing and in, in the environment that you grew up in, did you, were you exposed to a lot of, um, um, things that, that affected you negatively, particularly like, like generational cycles from your family. Like, you know, this is the way we've always done it. And this is the way we're going to keep doing it. And no one's stopped to question, like, you know, this is really messing everybody up and it continues to mess everybody up or, you know, conversely something that, that was going on in your, in your upbringing that a lot of other, you know, maybe other, other kids didn't have that, that you felt like was an advantage. So just like different cycles like that. I know you, you mentioned a minute ago, and I like the way you said this, that, um, with your children, you want to share your scars in, in mm-hmm. essence, showing them these are the mistakes that I made. And also, you, um, we talked earlier, or I mentioned earlier in the intro that you sent me that you grew up in a in a family where type two diabetes was was just something. I mean, that's the way my family was. Um, not my immediate family, my parents, but like all my aunts and uncles and everything on both sides. It's like, well, diabetes just runs in the family, and I'm like, no, eating eating fried bread runs in the family, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one of the things that my parents started to break, even though they didn't know exactly what they were doing. But I'm curious, like what, what sort of, uh, cycles or, or family cultures or traditions that, that were just flat out not helping anybody. Did you inherit and then have subsequently broken and said, this ends with me. I'm not passing this on to my kids. I think a lot of it is the food, right? And, and no surprise there with, you know, all the, the type two diabetics, uh, and that was mostly on mom's side, but that was where I spent most of my time as a kid. Uh, mom had a sister. She, mom is a type two diabetic. Her sister's type two diabetic. Uh, both of their parents type two diabetics, and I I know there are some other uh, family members, you know, aunts, uncles, that kind of stuff, who were type twos and. I think there's also quite a few who maybe were type two, but never were diagnosed because they just, you know, didn't spend a whole lot of time in the doctors. Right. Uh, but certainly fit the bill in terms of the lifestyle and that kind of thing. And I, I grew up uh, spending a lot of time around my grandfather. And I remember in their, their dining room every morning, he'd come out of his bedroom and, and, there would be a plate sitting there that had a little cotton ball, a piece of medical tape and a syringe with his insulin vial. And every morning I'd watch him, you know, take his insulin shot. And as a kid, I was scared to death of needles. Right. So the idea that I was going to have to grow up and do that on a regular basis was terrifying. And I think that's one of the things that, um, became it became a motivating factor for me to work out personally and it was also one of those things that um i became very aware of that you know at 25 30 35 i still don't have this thing right that everybody else around me was dealing with and it, mm-hmm. it you know it didn't take a rocket science to figure out that well maybe it had something to do with you know, the, the, the exercise and the way that I was eating as a result of trying to support that nutrition. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I'm, I'm not an, you know, I'm not a saint nutritionally. Um, I'm a foodie. I, I enjoy food, but I've also looked at it from the perspective of um, it's something that I know could be a problem and I have to keep my hands around it. 
Yeah. And we just, my, my, my wife, it was a, uh, the gym, when she was working at the gym, she was working as a nutritionist dietitian. She was an RD for, you know, 20 years. And uh, so just making smart choices from a nutrition standpoint is something that we've tried to instill in both of our kids. Um, you know, birthday, we had cake, you know, not a, not going to be a food Nazi, but you know, most, if you look at our, our family dinners, it's usually uh, a protein, a vegetable, and then some kind of, uh, if there's a, if there's a carbohydrate in there, usually it's, it's pretty much whole food, you mm -hmm. know, it's, you know, potatoes or rice or, you know, something along those lines. So we really try, have tried to break that cycle of, of just really poor nutrition um, choices, if you will. Yeah. You know, how do you, as you I, go ahead. How do you treat um, what, how do you treat what, what I would call junk food or what most people would call junk food, you know, candy, uh, that sort of stuff. How do you treat that with your kids so that they, there's, there's a balancing act, right. Between mm -hmm. like, between like, Oh, he wants it. Just give it to him or your, your kicks being girls. Um, but then there's also the other end of it is like, no, you can never have this because it's, it's not good for you. And which then makes them want it even more. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, so, so how do you, how do you model that or how do you parent around that strategy or that, what strategy do you use? I guess the best way to say that, um, to make sure that the understanding of healthy eating gets imprinted on them the way you want it to be. And you don't wind up falling on one side or the other. I don't know that there's a specific set of rules that we've <clears throat> adopted with that as much as we just really try to model uh, a good balanced approach to things. Um, you know, we don't keep, we don't keep a lot of junk food in the house. Mm -hmm. uh, when, when we do, it's usually on the weekend. Um, and so there's, there's not a whole lot readily available, right? Uh, which I think helps. You know, and, and as a parent with kids, I think part of our job is to is to set boundaries, like I said earlier, and the boundary is is a whole lot more easily adhered to if it's just not here in the house. Right. right? You don't have to have the fight of, hey, you know, mom, dad, can I have X, Y or Z? We don't have to have that fight if it's not there. Right. You know, and then, then they just get into the habit of, you know, like my little one she wakes up every morning and one of the things she asks for is strawberries. You know, she wants fresh fruit, you know, thank God my kid's asking for, you know, for fruit and not fruit loops. Right. You know, right. Which was what I grew up on. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. You and me both. Um, um Fruity pebbles or like the generic yeah. fruity pebbles, you know, Yeah. <laughs> which um, actually, if, if you look at that now, you know, I'm, tangent on this but like fruity pebbles and cocoa pebbles or cereal cinnamon toast crunch that kind of stuff if um i've seen several top level bodybuilders who are obviously geared up and, and all that sort of stuff um talking about this is great post-workout nutrition because it's you know you dump a couple scoops of protein into your bowl of fruity pebbles and eat at it and i'm like you just turned fruity pebbles into a performance enhancing food <laughs> not sure how you did that but okay that sounds cool um what we do is with, with, and we've done this since before he was born. Um, we, we have always foods and sometimes foods. 
Mm. And, and I chose that approach specifically because I've heard, I've heard a lot of, uh, what'd you say? Food Nazi type people earlier who were like, no, 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 we're not going to eat that. That's junk food. It's crap. It's bad for you. It's, you know, all that sort of stuff, which, which just fuels the fire to want it more in a little one. Mm -hmm. And, and I think it also sets people up to, to attach an unneeded morality around food. You know, it's all just protein, fats, and carbohydrates. That's all any of it is. And then, you know, you get additives and all that from the junk food. But but really, it's it's the difference between Fruit Loops and fruit is more circumstantial and more perception than it is from like hard and fast. This is what the is contained inside the the actual food. Obviously, there's nutrients that are in fruits that aren't going to be in the cereal, but but to vilify a fruit as junk or a food as junk food just because it's not completely unprocessed, I think that's that's swinging too far in the other direction. I don't know if that lines up with the way that you do things or not, but that's that's kind of the approach that I take. Well that's one of the reasons I don't like the term cheat day. I hate the term cheat day. I'm so glad you said that. Right? Like I mean <laughs> Cheat day, you know, to me means that, you know, you, you're like, you're doing something wrong. And like you said, there's some kind of uh, inherent morality in the food that you're eating and mm -hmm. which leads to guilt, which leads to sometimes, which leads to, you know, clients just spiraling out of control. And, you know, a couple of scoops of ice cream turns into, you know, a, a pint of it that's, that's been put down. Yeah. And I, I, prefer my my approach to looking at food is just saying okay it's this food is either going to take you closer to your goal or might move you a little bit further away right it's not good or bad it's just what do you what what choice do you want to make in this moment and you know kind of make the grown-up choice about what what you're going to do with it yeah. you know understand that if you decide to have that bowl of ice cream every night Okay, that's going to have an impact on things like your waistline, your A1Cs, your possibly your blood pressure, and you know all of these things. If you choose to have it one time a week, okay, well that's probably that impact is going to be negligible. As long as the other nights of the week you're doing things that are going to move you closer to your goals. So I, I I'm not a huge fan of. Uh, these camps that people tend to get into with nutrition. Um, I, I tend to look at nutrition from a principal standpoint as well. Um, my wife taught a, taught a class uh, called Eat Smart back in 2012 through probably 16 or 17. And she, she was one of the first people to my knowledge I know John Berardi did some of this um, where, you know, she would teach nutrition principles along with just the thought process, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, our, our take on it was that, you know, by the time you put the fork in your mouth, you've already kind of won or lost that round, you know, if, sure. if in terms of trying to get closer to a particular goal. So if you could change the way that people were thinking before they started to eat, then that led to different behaviors, mm -hmm. right? And um, one of the things that I really appreciate to this day about that class was she she approached it from a principal standpoint. So what I mean by that is, um, regardless of of 
how you package it, right? We all need water. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's essential life, right? We all need protein. Um, we're all going to get carbohydrates in some form or fashion. Um, fruits and vegetables are, you know, going to assist you more times than not. And I, I know that like, you know, right now the carnivore diet and, and that kind of approach is, is kind of big. And I know it works for some people. Um, but I think by and large over the long period of time, I think, well, let's just say, let's, let's just see what happens to those carnivores in 20 years. Right. That's all I'm going to say about that. Right. But I, I, my belief is that, you know, we need fruits and vegetables and then making appropriate uh, choices in terms of your portions relative to what you're trying to accomplish. Right. If you're trying to add some, some body weight, well, you're probably going to need bigger portions. If you're a bigger person, you're probably going to need bigger portions, right? If you're, if you're trying to lean up a little bit, you probably need to scale back on the portions a little bit. And I think you can take most of the popular diets that have been out and kind of lay them over that framework. And you're going to see the things that work. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. like training. You know, we all, to, to quote coach Dan, Dan John, we all push, we all pull, we all hinge, we all squat, you know, we carry stuff. And I think nutrition, I don't think nutrition varies from that. I think it's, it's principle driven as well. Yeah. Um, I haven't thought about this as much myself because my son is still quite young. And because I think that this tends to just based on my perception of it tends to affect females more than it does males but having a one teen girl and then another girl who's growing up um do you think about how the societal pressure is around food and and how that you know is related to things like body dysmorphia eating disorders that sort of stuff and and i and i'm i'm sure that that in your experience as a coach for you know two decades plus you've you've encountered that sort of those sorts of issues from clients who come into you with, you know, body dysmorphia or, or eating disorders, any of that kind of stuff. So what's your, and I want to hear you talk about that. Well, my oldest, we just, we just literally just had a conversation about this topic a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, the, the conversation was kind of centered around the idea of losing weight. And the, the point that I tried to drive home in that conversation was why, right? What, like, what are you trying to accomplish with that? Mm -hmm. And the reason I thought that was an important question to answer first, not just for her, but I think for clients as well. Um, like I, I have seen people go through the process of losing weight, put in the work, get the results, and they're still not happy. Right. Right. They 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 get the 20 pounds off or whatever. And all they can focus on is, well, if I got it, if I could just get five more off, then I'll be happy. OK, if I could just if I get that five pounds off and well, maybe I just need five more. Right. right? Like when what are you trying to accomplish with the idea of losing weight? What what box are you do you believe that's going to check off? Right. If if you're doing it because your A1Cs are out of control and your blood pressure is really high and you've got health concerns. 
Okay, well, that's a that's a measurable that we can come back and check after 12 weeks and see if you've made any changes to it, right? Um, but if you if you're thinking that weight loss is going to make you happier, <laughs> I think we need to re, kind of recalibrate that that thought process a little bit because it's my belief that if you're not happy at the beginning of the process, you're not going to be happy at the end of it. Yeah. And that was kind of the conversation that we had around that topic. Um, my oldest is, is she's, she doesn't have a, a weight issue. Um, she's tall. Uh, I'm 5'10", maybe 5'9", or 5'8", after a good deadlift day. Um, <laughs> you know, and she's probably, <laughs> she's probably 5'6" maybe five, 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 six. So she's going to be tall. Mm -hmm. Um, she's, she's fairly athletic. Uh, she's in good shape. She, and she, she has started training, uh, recently of on her own, you know, we, she comes to me with, um, questions about what she should do. And, you know, I was just up in a room this morning watching her do, uh, uh, get-ups and kind of, you know, helping her with positioning and that kind of stuff. Um, so in terms of how we handle things like body dysmorphia and just the way the way culture approaches things for for women we've tried to really stress just being healthy right let's let's be healthy first let's check that box off first and as a coach my belief my belief is that if as a coach and as a parent that if you're if you're inputting enough of the good things, you're probably going to be okay with where you're on the where you're where you're at on the back end, mm -hmm. right? It's it, you know kind of like uh, I think Pavel said once that if the, if a plane looks right, it'll fly right, or if it flies right, it'll look right. That's yes. I think that's the yeah. Quote. So our our approach has been trying to make sure that she flies right. And then, you know, the whatever aesthetic will will be what it's going to be mm -hmm. and what it's supposed to be, you know, mm -hmm. who she's supposed to be. Right. And but to be honest, that's also one of the that that whole dynamic is one of the reasons that we have uh, not really allowed her to, to engage in social media. Right. Um, it's just in a lot of cases, it's a toxic environment and it's not something that we believe she needed to be exposed to. So maybe we're sheltering her or protecting her a little bit from it, but she's got plenty of time in her life where she's going to make her own choices and, and will probably be exposed to that kind of thought process. Yeah. If, if I can hold her off of that for another four years, then I'm okay with that. Yeah. I don't yeah. know if that answers your question at all. But, no, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, well, I don't know that there was a, a specific answer. I just wanted to hear, you know, your thoughts on it and stuff, especially after you said the thing about not liking or not using the term cheat day. Um, because I'm, I'm really big on the idea that the, um, of, and it's inspired by a quote from Tony Blower from, from years and years ago. And I don't know if you know who he is. He was a, um, he's a combatives martial arts guy. Mm -hmm. Right. And he developed this system that's based off, um, re human physiology and how we reflexively, re you know, act in, 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 uh, 
in the face of stress or or the, the threat of danger like that. And so it's like, what is our nervous system hardwired to do? Let's build a system based off that rather than try to teach and reprogram the nervous system away from its reflexive stuff. But the, um, that gives a little context to what I'm about to say. The quote is, and I find this applies like principles across the board, that the context, not the context, the clarity with which we define something determines its usefulness to us, right? Mm. And so I, I've taken that to heart over the past 20 something years since I heard it the first time. And I'm like, what do these words that I'm using actually mean? And, and I know when I say them that it's perceived a particular way, but most importantly, what does my subconscious, my, my inner conversation register the words that I use as, as meaning. Right. And so when, like you said earlier, when we talk about a cheat day, um, almost invariably you see people get all uh, you know excited and it's like talking to a, a five-year-old about his favorite tv show they're super excited about it right as opposed to talking about you know brushing your teeth or whatever um you know that's the difference between talking about cheat day and talking about you know lunch on wednesday <clears throat> so there's a there's an emotional load that goes along with our words and words mean things right so um, cheat day is one of the things that I completely eliminated from my own vocabulary. Another one that I eliminated from my my vocabulary and also from when I was in the gym working with clients is we didn't call things treats, right? Because I use treats to train a dog, mm -hmm. right? But like if, um, and, and it's the, you, I'm sure you've heard these kinds of conversations before with your experience in the gym. Um, hypothetical client comes in Monday morning. How was your weekend? Or, or, you know, how, how, how are things? Well, well, I was really, really good up until last night. And then I went out and I didn't plan ahead. And the only thing they had to eat was beer and cheese fries. And so I ate all that and I was really, really bad. And now I need you to kick my ass because I did it. And I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, the, the underlying story there is I don't like myself. I don't trust myself. I have committed some sort of transgression against myself. And I'm seeking you to actually physically punish me through the means of exercise for mm -hmm. my dietary transgressions. And I'm like, that entire way of thinking is flawed at best and broken, you know, at, at worst. So, um, um, talk a little bit about that. Like, well, like I, your experience I, and your perspective on that. I, I think, I think it's, it stems from <clears throat> the same kinds of conversations. You know, you, you see a client <clears throat> on, on a Monday. Hey, how was your weekend? Oh, it was, it was, it was fun. I was really bad though. I ate X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Well, cheeseburger doesn't make you bad, right? You know, Cheeseburgers are delicious. <laughs> right. You know, it's a, it doesn't make you a bad person. There's We're not talking about morality and, and theology here. And so for you to expect me to give you, you know, in lieu of 200 lashes, I'm going to give you 200 swings to to punish you just doesn't make sense. Right. right? And, and again, I think they're following down that thought process it, it's there's a, a an unnecessary level of guilt that that comes with that thinking and a lot of the folks who are really struggling with that struggle to begin with already have enough that they're fighting without us adding to it right right our, our job is to help lift them up mm -hmm. help them learn how to lift themselves up not not beat them down with you know 
more punishment, so to speak. Right. Um, so it just, it made me kind of take a step back in terms of how I was approaching things. And it actually informed some of those conversations, mm -hmm. right? Well, you know, I was bad over the weekend. I had this, this, and this. Well, that thing doesn't make you bad, right? Food is agnostic. It's not good or bad. It just moves you closer to a goal or might inhibit your goal. Mm -hmm. That's all, that's all it is. Yeah. You know, and to that point, to that point, like we were talking about with the Fruity Pebbles earlier, Fruity Pebbles could be moving someone toward their goal. If it's, you know, these guys that like I was talking about, you know, if it's if that's their post-workout thing and, and it fits in with their um, um, supplement schedule. <laughs> I can tell you I, as a this was um, this was back in the I would say probably the the mid 90s. Uh, I don't know if you remember Bill Phillips. Oh yeah. EAS and you know, his whole body for life program and all that. Um, muscle media magazine was how I first was exposed to kettlebells. Mm. That's right. That's where Pavel was writing. Or yeah, Pavel, right? Pavel was writing some stuff from there. And I remember um, John Duquesne had, had bought a full page ad for the release of the original Russian kettlebell challenge book. And I'm like, well, this is interesting, you know? Mm. So, yeah. So I remember, uh, going into the gym and there was a point in time where my pre-workout was uh, one of Bill Phillips' myoplexes and a 12-ounce can of Mountain Dew. And I had pretty good workouts those days. I bet you did. <laughs> you know? Um, so, again, I, I don't want to say that I, I'm I, I'm not a I'm not perfect from a nutrition standpoint, but even saying that I hear the flaw in the logic behind it as right. if, you know, the Mountain Dew makes me a bad, bad guy. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I don't recommend that to clients because I think it's, there's, there's a, there's a lot of, um, there are better choices. Um, and I think there are probably healthier choices, but to say that, you know, that that was bad somehow. Right doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, especially when I look back through my training logs and I could see, well, there was a performance benefit from it. Yeah. There, there just was right. Yeah. And, and, um, I, I was also in that realm where, um, ephedrine, I don't know if you ever had the, uh, Rip fuel. The pleasure <laughs> of working out with some of that stuff, you know, the old uh, ephedrine, aspirin, and caffeine stack. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, again, great workouts. Mm -hmm. But I I noticed at some point I was having, I didn't have trouble going to sleep, but I was having trouble getting up the next day mm -hmm. when I was using that. And that kind of tipped me off that, okay, well, maybe this isn't, maybe this isn't the right choice for me. Right. Right. Again, it's not that it's, it's not bad. It's just, it wasn't the right choice for me from a health perspective. Right. And so, you know, looking at that, having those kinds of conversations with clients, you know, I was bad over the weekend. No, let's, let's, let's look at this in terms of, you know, is there something we can learn from it? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, how did, how did you feel physically before? How did you feel physically after? Um, you know, do, what else was going on around you? All of right. those things matter, right? Um, 
again, food, food is just food. It doesn't, it, it's not good or bad. And I mm -hmm. think, I, I think as a, as a industry, um, you know, we like to get into our little camps. It's good for marketing. Sure. It's good for business, right? You know, um, we do things like this. Other people don't. And that's why we're, you know, we're a tribe and you, you're going to feel at home here because we do things a certain way. Um, and I, unfortunately, I think that lends to, I think that throws gasoline on the fire for a lot of people. Yeah. Right. The, the whole idea that uh, carbs are bad somehow, or, you know, before it was carbs, it was fat. You right. couldn't have fat. Everything had to be low fat. Right. And, and it's, um, I don't know, man, it's, it's, I don't know if we're going to solve any problems here with this, but I, I, I just think that um, we have to take a big, bigger picture look at food yeah. and understand what it actually is. It's a, it's a tool to help mm -hmm. us get where we want to go. Yeah. I know for myself, um, I tend to feel better and just operate better on a day-to-day -day basis in a lower carbohydrate, keep bordering on ketogenic, if not full on ketogenic environment myself. Um, and several years ago, I, I did that thing that so many of us do where you woke up one day and you were fat, you know, and I'm like, Oh yeah, I need to do something about this. And, and I decided that I was going to strictly adhere to a ketogenic thing for un, until I reached a specific goal. And I did that. And in doing that, I realized, um, a number of things, one that 100% to compliance to something like that is far easier than 95% compliance. Mm -hmm. Because when I decided I'm 100% committed to this, there will be no deviations. The The pressure of making a choice three weeks from now was just gone. You know, so I've decided I will not do this. You know, it's and 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 I think that that there's a um, a parallel to to the mentality behind that that goes along with our various relationships, marriage, um, whatever our spiritual path is, and of course, our kids. Right. So I think that that being 100% committed is easier than being 95% committed. Being 100% compliant or yeah, yeah, compliant is easier because it removes the doubt. It removes the, the, the necessity to make a decision that we haven't prepared for on the fly. The decision was already made weeks ago, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And um, someone, someone, when I was, talking about this they're like well the only reason a ketogenic diet works is because you're in calorie deficit the only reason it works for fat loss is because you're in calorie deficit and i'm like yeah what's your point and I'm like well it's then the magic behind it and all this kind of stuff and i'm like well i don't really read research and don't really understand that stuff and i don't really care that much but i know that right now for me it's easy for me to stick to this and for me myself and for a few clients that i coached with it after the fact it worked very well because it made staying in a calorie deficit easier to do because mm -hmm. of the way the, the hormonal environment affects hunger pangs. And, you know, then of course the psychological aspect of, um, of, I used to call it the, uh, the flat tire syndrome, you know, you ate, you ate one cookie, you had to eat the whole bag, right? Mm -hmm. You, it's like, if you had a flat tire, do you get out and fix it or call AAA or whatever to, to get the car back on the road as soon as you can? Or you get out and you look at it and go, well, that one's flat. I may as well flatten the other ones and smash the windshield and set the car on fire too, right? Mm -hmm. I'll buy a new car on Monday. Yeah, I'm getting a new car on Monday. It's no big deal, right? Um, insurance will pay for 
<laughs> and then you go to the car dealer. How was your weekend? Well, I was really bad. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so, so understanding that, that, uh, and that goes back to the whole thing that we've been talking about the whole time is, is being principle based. Right. Um, but I, I do want to, to go back to what we were talking about word choices and stuff and cheat day and all that, and how that relates, um, as a concept or as a principle to parenting. Um, I decided a long time ago, there were certain things that I wouldn't say because it even joking, like, I, like I don't really do self-effacing humor. Like, uh, you know, I, I don't, you know, when somebody says something, uh, I don't know, like, like people refer to themselves as, as, as being the ugly guy or, you know, being the asshole or something like that. I don't say those things about myself because I don't want somebody else to say them about me. And, and I don't want to say them about myself because I know that my subconscious mind doesn't have a sense of humor. It doesn't have an off switch and it just takes whatever I say about me as, as you know, okay, well, this is how we're going to play things out. Right. Um, so one of the things that, that I would have been very cognizant of doing is eliminating certain words, certain phrases from the conversations that I have with my son, just like the sometimes food and the, the always food stuff. Um, very and some examples of that um we do not ever intentionally tell our son to be careful because what that's really saying in in the way that i think about it is i don't trust your judgment there is danger and you're not equipped to handle it be careful you know that kind of stuff and it becomes just such a the the, the other part of it has become such a trite thing that like it's just another noise that that is not even being heard um, but what I do tell my son is if he's in a situation where there is the potential for injury or imminent danger, or, you know, if you drop something, it will break something like that. Um, Hey, Hey kid, be aware that if you do this, then that might happen, you know, be aware of your surroundings or, or he's climbing a tree or whatever. Instead of like, be careful up there. It's like, okay, what's your, what's your plan for your next move? Be aware that that limb over there is rotten and it won't hold you up. Um, another example is I frequently hear parents tell their kids when something is forbidden or not allowed, you can't do that. And this was a big one for me when I, when I first realized how important the way that I speak to my son is, especially early on shaping his subconscious. Um, and, and it's, it's quite funny too, that it's, it's played out that he's done things before and a grown up who's not my wife or myself will tell him, well, you can't do that. And he's literally looked this adult in the eye and said, but I already did like, with just a confused look on his face. Um, it, it, cause that's the big thing for me. A kid does something, they've already done it, even if it's not allowed. And the parent comes in and says, no, 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 you can't do that. And I'm like, what sort of psychological subconscious toll does that take being told that over and over and over again for those formative years of your life being told you can't do that. You can't do that. Especially when it's something that they've literally already been successful at. Mm. Right. So that's one of the phrases that we eliminated. We'll say that's not allowed or please don't do that. Or, um, that's, you know, uh, that's unacceptable, but we don't say you can't do something, especially if he's already done it. I'm wondering if there are things in your, your personal vocabulary, your family culture, even in the way that you interact with clients that are similar to that, where you've, where you've looked at, at, okay, what does this word really mean? Like cheat day or like we said about treats earlier, like, like where does that, and I'm talking specifically about how it works with being a dad, like, like, have you put any thought into that? 
one of the one of the I think conscious choices that I have made uh, in terms of how I I speak to both of my girls, um, I've never told them that they're bad. You know, around and and usually for parents that that happens around in the context of kid has messed up, done something that maybe you know there there were boundaries against and against the rules that kind of thing, and now the parent is is kind of verbally trying to correct. Mm -hmm. I always tried to draw a distinction between the actions that they were taking in that moment versus who they are right right and and i think that's that just comes i think part of that is a maybe that was part of my religious upbringing maybe that that was just a part of my spiritual walk but i i i i'm not not going to tell my kids that they're bad people right. in any form or fashion I'll let them know that I'm not happy with the behaviors that they are exhibiting in that moment. Um, you know, my, my 14 year old and the, and the seven year old, sometimes they butt heads, right? Because sure. they're siblings and that's what they do. Um, you know, if one of them is, you know, not necessarily in the mindset that they want to share something, you know, I'm not going to tell them stop being selfish. Right. You know, because that to me has a connotation of that's what you are, as opposed to maybe in that moment, the way that you are acting might be. Right. And right. I think, I don't think there are bad kids. I think maybe there are actions that, that happen that, you know, we wish didn't. Mm -hmm. Um But I, I've always tried to be very conscious about how I phrased that because I never wanted them to con to confuse who they were mm -hmm. with what their actions were in that moment. Right. Because the reality of it is we all make mistakes, right? Again, we, we all have scars, right? And if I were to be judged, you know, by my worst moments, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I'd be a pretty lousy human being. Right. Right. But I think that I'm I'm more than just my worst moments. And I want them to I want them to believe that as well. Yeah. Well, to that point, um, obviously, as dads, we want to be positive role models for our kids. Um, how do you define positive role model in your own words as it relates to being a dad? I think in this this is a this kind of goes back to a conversation you and I have had online. Um my relationship with my dad is not the one that I think he, either one of us would have wished for. Uh I don't think he's a bad guy. Uh we're just never gonna be golf buddies. Mm -hmm. Right. One, because I hate golfing. Um, two. <laughs> And two, we're just we're just not that close, right? And I have always looked at I've always looked at my relationship with my girls through that lens of what did I think I was missing out on 
what did I think I I, I missed in that relationship mm-hmm. and tried to go out of my way to make sure that I was providing that to the girls. Number one. Number two, as far as, you know, consciously being a good role model to them, it comes back to trying to live out some of those principles that we were talking about before, you know, making sure that uh, I'm, I'm trying to be the kind of guy uh, that they want to grow up and marry at some point one day. You know, so uh, I try to be very conscious of how I speak to their mother. Um, one, because she's my wife, right? She's in, in this world, she's my number one relationship. Um, but two, how they see me treat her mm-hmm. is how they will come to expect that it's okay for them to be treated somewhere down the line. Um and I, I, you know, I just, I want the best for them. So I'm trying to model that as much as I can. And, and again, I'm human. Mm-hmm. I, I screw up sometimes. I'm, I'm, I make mistakes, but you know, that's, that's the kind of mindset that I try to approach it with. I love that. And that brings up a, a really, really important point. Um, I, I read like a little meme or, you know, post thing somewhere on Instagram the other day that, it just was chock full of wisdom. And it said that, um, and I'm paraphrasing this, but essentially that, that however we interact with our kids during those early formative years, they will define as love for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. So if, if they, you know, if we're yelling at them or if we're yelling and arguing with our spouse all the time, they, that gets imprinted. This is what, this is what love is and how it's, you know, expressed even if it's unhealthy and it's i think what normal it's supposed to be yeah yeah it's yeah it, it's completely normalized like that and so many of us um which is why i'm in this this whole um lane of of breaking helping men break cycles and stuff like so many of us have those cycles that we grew up with and we just didn't realize that that it wasn't helpful and that there could even be another way and so um i think that that's one of the the good things about the internet now is it's making it making people just more aware of everything good and bad. And, and we can take it upon ourselves to put our attention on the good like that. But the thing that you said about um, modeling the role of the man that you hope your daughters grow up to marry someday, that's huge. And for myself, um, I've told this story tons of times, so I won't, I won't drag it out. But when we found, we had a great deal of difficulty getting, um, my son here. There's a lot, like a lot of issues that went around with that. That's a story for another time. But when we found out for sure that my wife was pregnant and this was actually going to happen, I'm like, this is awesome. And then, then the reality of it's like, okay, who do I want to show up as what qualities or values do I want to embody as, or, or do I want to pass on to him and make sure it's important to him? And I understood enough about it at the time. This is where I even started really delving into how child development works, but I understood enough about how the mind works to think, okay, whatever he sees me doing that I'm modeling, that's going to be part of it. And so I like write out all these qualities and I look at the list and I'm like, oh damn, I'm like really falling short on like two thirds of this. Right. And so I set about correcting my own course in those areas. And it's got me thinking, especially over the past several years, um, about, the definition and misconceptions around the idea of masculinity 
because I'm talking about being the the kind of man that I want my son to emulate and grow up to to be. You're talking about being the kind of man that you want your daughters to grow up and and be drawn to. So I'm curious. Um, I just want to hear your thoughts on just masculinity in general and how that affects you as a girl dad. Man, that's a that's a big topic. Because <laughs> um, I feel like masculinity is. To some extent, I feel like it's misunderstood. Mm -hmm. um, like, I'm not a fan of the the term toxic masculinity. I think there are people that are just jerks. Mm -hmm. You know, and they could be male or female. Right. Um, or maybe I should maybe I should walk that back and say there are people who are acting like jerks. Um, Fair enough. So I, I don't, I don't, I think you can be toxic or, or behave in a toxic way, um, regardless of what your gender happens to be. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, I think unfortunately the role of the father in the life of children has been undermined or is being undermined somewhat uh, in our culture today. Uh, I, I don't, I want to, I'm like you, I don't really want to go down too far down a, like a political thing here. Um, sure. But I just see it in a lot of pop culture. I see uh, the kind of the, the role of the man in, you know, like if you think back to some of the sitcoms in the eighties, right. The, the dad was kind of the, the butt of the jokes. Always right? like Homer Simpson is the <laughs> is the major source of humor for the Simpsons and has been for what? 30 years. years yeah, 40 years, whatever years, something like that. Um, and so rather than being a source of love and, and strength and understanding and wisdom, you know, dad is now kind of this goofball who is, you know, needs everybody else in the family to keep himself out of his own way. Right. And again, I'm, I'm not perfect. Um, and I do, my default sometimes is humor. Um, but I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. My, my girls and I joke around a lot. Um, well, there's a difference between being fun and using humor as a, a way to connect and communicate with people and just being a complete and total idiot like Homer. Right. Right. Um, mm. And so I, I think I think the 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 most masculine thing you can do is be yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I I tend to be very open with my girls. I tend to be very affectionate. Um, I'm not a I'm not a huggy kind of physical person with anybody outside of my house, but it it is it is a rare day when one of my daughters walk by me or I walk by them and one of us isn't poking at the other, just, you know, just as a show of love. Sure. If nothing else. Um, and turn, so in terms of, you know, being trying to model good masculinity, um, showing up, right. I, I, we we talked offline at, at, at one point about uh, whether or not I was going to try to open up a, a 
training facility here in South Carolina. And as a family, we've kind of made the decision that that's not going to happen largely because again, my, my oldest is getting involved in sports. Uh, my youngest is now starting to kind of get more active and doing things like that. And you probably know this, you've experienced this as a gym owner or a facility mm -hmm. owner or a coach with his own studio and there's a lot of dinners that you miss because you're training clients. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of, because, because that's the nature of being with clients is you have to be with them when they're not at work. And right. when they're not at work is usually early in the morning and then in the evenings. Well, those are the times my kids are home in the morning and in the evenings. And when my oldest was, was little, uh, I missed a lot of dinners and one of the things that really happened for me during the pandemic was uh, the pandemic for, for us as a family was both a blessing and a curse. Uh, curse because of all the things that, you know, obviously was happening around us, but a blessing in that it gave me kind of some breathing room from the normal schedule of, you know, training early in the morning and then training in the evening to kind of take a step back and be able to say, okay, well, I don't, I don't want to go back to that. Right. Right. And, and I was, I was blessed enough to be able to operate my training studio really from like six in the morning until the middle of the afternoon. And I could be home with the girls when they got home. And um, so I haven't had to miss a whole lot of dinner since 2020. And I, I'm just not going to go back to it. So right. circling back to your question, part of being, being a good role model, being a masculine role model is being present, being there, showing up, you know, um, I'm going to reference Dan John here again, uh, but I've heard Dan on a number of different uh, opportunities talk about how most of his success has come from just showing up. Mm -hmm. And I think as a parent, you got to be present. You know, you just, you have to be there. Uh, you got to be there in order to to be able to make an impression. Definitely. Um, and I don't think it has to be a whole lot more complicated than that. I mean, I guess you have to do act like you're, you know, got a head on your shoulders because you could be present and be, you know, behaving very toxically and, and have a, you know, kind of a, uh, a negative impression, I guess, if you will. But But then if you're doing that, are you really being present? I mean, like if you're sitting on the couch, you know, eating chips, drinking beer and watching football while your kid is in the room with you. Are you being present? That's and, true. And I would argue, no, you're in the same room together, but you're miles apart in terms of any sort of meaningful connection. And <clears throat> I think that, that being present, uh, I agree with you completely that, that, that is, that's vital. That's like way up high on the list. Um, but to like dial that in even more specifically and get even more clarity around it, it's not, it, being present in such a way that I'm able to connect and, and strengthen that connection or connect in a slightly different way. Um, those aren't exactly the same thing, but they're related to each other. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So it's like, like being present is like, uh, to me, um, <clears throat> my son has a T-ball game and I go him and he, he goes out there and he does his stuff and, and I'm there and he knows I'm there. Right. Connecting is, 
the times that we've done it and I've been out there on the field with him and I'm talking to him about, um, you know, when the ball comes to you catch it and throw it to first, or I'm in the, in the dugout when it's changing innings. And I'm like, here's your helmet, here's your glove. Give me your, your, um, your bat or whatever, you know, like I obviously wouldn't have a helmet and a glove at the same time, but you know what I'm saying? Like, like being there and him recognizing that dad is here. He's not telling me what to do, but he's here to help me if I need the help. And, and he's here to encourage me when I need it. And he's also here to high five me when I just, you know, wail on the ball and, and, you know, throw it or hit it really well. So being present and being connected are intimately tied to each other, but I don't think they're exactly the same thing. And I think both of them are vital. Um, so I think you probably have to have one in order to have the other. <clears throat> yeah. Right? Well, I think one leads to, or opens the opera, opens the door to the opportunity to have the other. Yeah. You I get, think you gotta be present in order to have the connection. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's like a prerequisite, you know, you yeah, need yeah, to be yeah. able to hinge well in order to be able to swing a kettlebell properly. Yeah. Yeah. Good analogy. I like that. Um, so to, to that point, cause I just saw what time it is and we're, we're grooving along here, but we've been at it for a minute. What's the biggest challenge that you face now as a dad? I think, um, not taking for granted the time that I have with him because it just, you know, my, my oldest is going to turn 50. 15 next month and it feels like like there's a i have a video of her uh when she was three with me doing a turkish getup mm -hmm. holding her you know by the back of her you know by the back of her little sweater using her as my my kettlebell so to speak and sure. she's got her arms out and she's you know i'm flying um to me that day was yesterday right right she's clearly not that little little person anymore um, so I don't want to, I think the biggest challenge for me is not taking for granted the fact that I do have this time with them, trying to make use of it, mm -hmm. you know, make some good memories so that, um, I can leave that impression. You had said in the, um, when we initially started talking about having you on the show, you had, had told me on, um, on our messaging back and forth in on facebook that one of the things that that you were determined not or you were you were determined to do was to show up better than your dad did for you 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 said that there were some issues there you know there was a divorce that he he mm -hmm. wasn't really present for you um what what have you done well not even what have you done like like what are the biggest challenges you face i guess is the best way to word it in breaking those cycles and consistently showing up as the man you want to be versus the, the man that was the dad that was programmed into you. Because like I, I, you were talking earlier about stereotypes and, and pop culture stuff. And yeah, that's, that's very prevalent. You know, you got your Homer Simpson type and then you've got your, your um, absent provider type. Like if you watch a show like Mad Men, like the Don Draper character, right? He's just gone all the time. He comes home, he reads a newspaper, he goes to to bed he gets up he leaves the next day on the weekend he plays golf and in his free time he bangs his secretary he has nothing to do with his kids right so there's that absent provider and that's the guy that um it's like uh the denzel washington character in the movie fences where the teen son comes up and says why didn't you ever like me and denzel's character replies i don't have to like you it's not my responsibility to like you i fed mm -hmm. you i kept you you know so there's like that emotional disconnect which i think my own personal thought on that is rooted somewhere in the idea that 
to show emotion is weak because men don't cry. And so mm-hmm. when we start to feel that sort of thing, um, there's, there's, a, a, there's our own experience and there's all these different, um, um, not particularly useful pop culture stereotypes that formulate who we see ourselves as a dad. And in order to break these cycles, we have to step back and say, I don't want to be any of those people. Mm-hmm. Which then, of course, begs the question, who do I want to be and how do I go about breaking those cycles? So, like I said earlier, we're in similar age brackets. We grew up in with the same general idea of pop culture. Um, what are the biggest challenges that you've had in looking back at your life and saying, okay, this is who I don't want to be. I'm going to break that and I'm going to be this other guy. How do I do it? And what's the challenge there? Like, what's the stuff that keeps showing up for you? Well, I think it mm-hmm. starts with little things. Right. And um, this is going to sound how it's going to sound, but I'm going to say it anyways. But, you know, I don't think I don't think my dad gave me a hug until I was in my 40s. Mm. Right. And and again, I'm not I don't I don't want to paint him as a as this like, you know, villain, but that's the reality of it. That's at least that's what I remember. So I go out of my way to make to hug my kids on a daily basis. You know, I go out of my way to make sure that I tell them that I love them on a daily basis. Um, and then, but, but those things are, can just be surface level if I don't follow it up with being present, you know, uh, just the other night again. And, and these things happen, I think more with the 14 year old because of where she is in life than with the seven year old, but the 14 year old and I were, were up until, I don't know, it was 11 or 11.30 the other night just talking about how, like, her faith relationship and how that has to play out, how, what's that supposed to look like and and those kinds of things. And in those kinds of deep conversations mm-hmm. are how I break the cycle because I've, I can't tell you that I've ever had that kind of conversation with my dad. The closest thing we ever got to with that was something that I initiated. um, And it was kind of a, one of those, we're going to put all our cards on the table and just kind of get it out and let us, so we both know where we stand. Right. Um, And I, but I had to do that in order to get it right. Dad was, has never really been one of those people who's been open to that kind of thing. And uh, so I just want to make sure that I'm not that. Uh, and I'm I'm going to make my own mistakes. I'm sure I've made my own mistakes as a parent. Um, but those are the things. It's it's the little things, telling them that I love them, making sure that I, I hug them regularly, and then backing that up with showing up, trying to be consistent, and who I am from one day to the next. Um, And I think part of it is just the way that my wife and I live our lives and that we've tried to not be afraid to take chances and do things. You know, like I'm, I'm staring down the barrel of 50 and looking at completely kind of reinventing my life here you know, there's a lot of folks that, that when they get to be our age, they're just kind of like ready to settle in. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. And um, we just, we've never been that. My wife and I have never been that. Um, mm-hmm. 
sometimes to our detriment, uh, but it, you know, we, we've tried to do things without the context of being afraid of trying, you know, I've tried and failed at a lot of stuff. And if my kids remember that, then I'll be okay with that. Cause they'll, they'll be okay. Cause they won't be afraid to try themselves. Right. You know, I can see both of, I can see both of our kids having kind of an entrepreneurial spirit. Mm -hmm. And um, that's something I'm very proud of. Yeah. And I'm proud of who they are already, but um, that just, you know, gives me the warm and fuzzies. Yeah. To, to that point of entrepreneurial spirit, I was, I was raised that if you want money, you go to work and I mm -hmm. never questioned it. Um, and I also had a dad who probably would have been very entrepreneurial if that hadn't been the paradigm that he had in his own like internal code. Um, my son is five and a few weeks ago we were talking about money. I think he's wanting to, it was in the context of he wanted this particular toy and he has some money that he's gotten from birthdays and that sort of stuff. And he's like, how much more money do I need to be able to buy that thing? And, and I asked him, I said, do you know how you get money? And he said, no. Um, well, first he said, he said, grandma gives it to me or grandpa gives it to me. Um, and, um, but he said, no, not really. And, I'm very proud of this moment. I said, the the best way to get money is to solve problems for other people. Because mm -hmm. that's what entrepreneurs do, right? I mean, you you solve the I want to look good at my family or high school reunion problem for people, or I want to get my get off my cholesterol meds problem for people, or the the I want to deadlift 500 pounds in a tactical strength challenge problem that people have. Um and it was it was a it was a pretty big emotional moment for me to be able to look him in the eye and know that that's that's the thing that I'm telling him at this age. That's what he's going to grow up with rather than I'm going to go sell my time to help someone else make more money so that then I can get a little bit of the money that they made. So um, I'm glad you brought that part up. And that was just a tangent that I wanted to throw out there. Um, are you ready for the rapid fire round? Sure. All right. Um, what's one useless talent that you have? <clears throat> I have a ridiculous recall of entirely useless 80s trivia. Um, oh, really? wife, for instance, like um, yeah, my wife always calls it the Abraham um, principle. And Abraham was the goldfish that uh, Arnold had on different strokes. Mm -hmm. you know, and, the, you know, so she's like, why do you know these things? I yep. don't know. Do you remember when Abraham died? I do. That I do not remember. Abraham died and um um what's his name? Gary Coleman Arnold um disappears into the bathroom with him and you hear him yell, Those who came from the sea now return to the sea, and you hear it flush. So for some reason that got imprinted on me. So that's a good one to have. Um next next uh next question in the in the the lightning round here. What's a personal mantra or belief that you are that you truly want to pass on to your kids, and you're determined to make sure that it happens? Just like a, a mantra or a phrase, something like that. Be consistent. Favorite holiday. Christmas. Most valuable piece of advice you've ever received. Show up. David Lee Roth or Sammy Hagar. James Hetfield. Ooh, <laughs> good one. Um, 
What is your favorite Pantera album and why is it Vulgar Display of Power? <laughs> I think because of Walk. Yeah, Walk was a gateway drug for for a lot of a lot of people for heavy metal for sure. You would have been what, 16 or 17 when that one hit? Probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah. in my opinion, greatest metal album of all time. Um uh what if you could only eat one thing for the rest of your life, what would it be? Wings. Chicken wings. Nice. Or steak. I, I kind of cheated on that, but that's fine. That's fine. Um, and then the last one is what's a cherished family tradition that you have either inherited and want to pass on or have created that you hope will pass on to your grandchildren and future generations? Christmas morning is uh and it is has always been special. Um it's special in our family this year was was very different um my wife lost her father back in february and her mom is now in a memory care facility mm. and christmas morning used to be get up kids open their presents we'd have breakfast as a family together and then it was pack the kids into the car and, and go up to where her parents lived and that was you know an hour and a half hour and 45 minutes away and then we would spend the night at our parents place and and um kind of have christmas evening and christmas dinner with them and um so the christmas day has always been like a very special day for us as a family mm -hmm. uh, this year was a little different because we didn't have uh one we're eight plus hours away from where we used to be so the drive to to that place would have been different anyways mm -hmm. uh, but because we're down here by ourselves christmas this was the first christmas that we had as a family where we could just kind of hang out at the house and enjoy each other's company without having to race around packing everything up and and, and going and that that could sound like a negative, right? The the idea of having to pack everything up and race out of the door. Um, but those times as a family were always good. Mm -hmm. um, so this Christmas morning was a little bit different in that we didn't have to do that. It was the, the reasons why it was different are sad um, or are something that, that, you know, we kind of mourn the loss of. Mm -hmm. but at the same time we had a really good day you know it was it was um, my mother lives with us so it was really it was just the five of us my wife uh, my two girls my mom and we just had a nice relaxing day together um, and so Christmas morning has always Christmas day has always been a very special uh, day for us as a family and and I hope that when my girls go out into the world and and maybe have families of their own that 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 tradition will continue i love it i absolutely love it well dave thanks a bunch for being on the show i appreciate your insights appreciate your wisdom it's been good to get to know you a little bit better and um any anything that you want to tell the people who are listening like can they come find you somewhere if they're people like do you do online training do you only do in in person so if they want to know more about how to get in touch with you or find you where do they go I, I, yes, sir. I, I actually, I do, uh, most of my training is, is online at this point. 
Um, you can go to uh, davescottcoaching.com. Uh, that's probably the easiest place to find me. And um, uh, I really appreciate the time and uh, I appreciate you having me on. It was, it, I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, me too. I appreciate you. Um, and that wraps it up for now. So I'm going to stop recording and everybody who's listening, appreciate you. And we will see you soon.